0: Hello, this is Yaro Starek and welcome to another interview with an expert. Today on the line I have with me uh, Jeff Barson. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Yaro. Now, Jeff uh, has been in touch with me for I think a long time actually, Jeff. I'm not sure when you first got on my radar. Maybe you can help me. What were we talking about? Uh, well,
1: uh, you know, at one time I was writing uh, initially years ago uh, when you owned Entrepreneur's, not Entrepreneur's Journey. What was the, the small business blog. I was small business branding. I was guest writing on there for a few months, and I think that was our first kind of connection.
0: Okay. So that's at least four years ago, I'd say, by now. Yeah.
1: Okay. Probably something like that, yeah.
0: yeah. Now, Jeff uh, comes from a medical background, which has parlayed into all kinds of entrepreneurial endeavors, which is what we're here to talk about today. Uh, Thankfully, I don't know the full story about Jeff yet, which is fantastic for doing an interview because I'm going to learn uh, just as much about Jeff as listeners will at the same time. However, I do know that Jeff has got some uh, very successful uh, membership sites and, and websites on the Internet as well as some offline business success in, obviously, a massive industry. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that, Jeff. Maybe you could start by telling us uh, a little bit about your your personal background. Like, did you – obviously, you studied something at university to become what you are today. Maybe you could take us back to that point.
1: Well, I I did. I was actually an art major. Um, So I was, for most of the 90s, a professional artist living in New York City. I was a realist painter. Um, and I had clients that ranged from most of the uh, publishers in North America through Warner Brothers and, and did, um, you know, paintings and, and had galleries and agents around the country. Um, and to be honest, art is a terrible, terrible business model. Um, one where you produce all of your content that takes potentially, in my, in my case, months. Um, and then, you know, especially if you're talking about gallery paintings, then you're attempting to find people, uh, to purchase that. So. I was successful at it, fortunately, um, and I retired. I, my goal was that I was going to retire. I bought a house in Park City, Utah, and moved out here where I still live in order to kind of ski during the day, and I was going to kind of grow a beard and and paint at night, and you know, do that kind of thing. But through happenstance, I started a medical company. Um, uh, you know, I saw an opportunity, and so I stopped. I stopped my art career.
0: Uh, stop. How, how can an artist suddenly become interested in a medical career?
1: Well, at one time I was a pre-med major too. So I had a double major and I was a pre-med major and an art major. And then one of my professors uh, basically kind of pulled me aside, an art professor in this case, and said, you know, do you know how many, art, do you know how many doctors there are? in the United States and do you know how many good artists there are and don't you think you would be best, you know, don't you, don't you want to do something, you know, that's going to make an impact is basically what he told me. <laughs> so, so I dropped my um, pre-med major and, you know, focused on art and then I moved uh, after I, I did not graduate. I left seven credits short, um, but then moved to Boston and then uh, to Manhattan, which is the center of the art world. And, uh, you know, kind of started doing that. I was fortunate in that um, I was never one who had either a lack of, um, you know, I never thought that I couldn't do almost anything, um, which has served me well um, because I think that most people think, you know, are surprised that they have success. I've always just kind of expected to be able to do things. And, and fortunately, those kind of um, what things have. Well, you know, I think it has a lot to do with my upbringing. When I was a, a child, uh, we moved to Europe. And I, so I grew up a, a, a fair amount of my life, well, three formative years in England um, and went to, a, you know, Beechwood Park Preparatory School for Boys. And I was the only American there. Um, and so, the environment was conducive to me learning to act on my own. I, I don't know how best to put it that way, but but other kind of family you know things allowed me. Um The support that I knew that I could just kind of go do anything and kind of had a safety net in a lot of ways, at least emotionally and with family kind of support when I was a child. And so when I decided I was going to be an artist, I was probably about 13. And I said, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is go get a scholarship. And so I, you know, applied and there was one school, and it happened to be in my state, that I wanted to go to. And at the time in the 80s, it had one of the better uh, illustration programs in the country, probably you know, one of the top three schools in the country really wanted to go there. So I went there. And you know, art, if you are an artist, um, and I used to teach this to university students, if you're an artist, the level of competition that you are going to face is unlike just about any other level of competition. It is, it is, you know, everybody who goes to art school in, at the university level was the best artist in their local school district and some other kinds of things. But art is not valued the same way that, you know, finance is valued or other things. There's, it's very difficult to make a living as an artist. And it's very, it's even more difficult to make a lot of money as an artist. Um, you know, so so I learned, in effect, that art is very kind of entrepreneurial, and I was always just better at the business aspects of it, and kind of seemed to have a, a sense for certain things that other artists, artists friends of mine, didn't really have, and so I had a fair amount of success um, that way. I mean,
0: what's the distinction there? Is it just the case you know how to uh, sell your arts? Well, I'll tell
1: you what the distinction is, is that the only criteria that you are valued upon as an artist is your ability to execute on a couple different levels. Now, some of those are social levels. uh, Some of those are other, you know, kind of levels. But the predominant one is it depends. It is entirely a meritocracy. If you are, you know, uh, deaf, dumb and blind, but you can still paint better than somebody else, uh, you will be able to you know have success now uh, you know there are anomalies with that and there are kind of clichés about um that that and some of those hold true i mean it is the case that everybody in literally everybody actually wants to be an artist. I don't know of anybody who doesn't want to be an artist because being an artist has a certain kind of sense in their mind about, okay, I get to wear a beret. I get to go around and and do things that other people don't want to do. I have kind of social capital that I can spend in various ways. All of that is very true, but most people don't want to actually do the art because if you are an artist, your life is spent at two o'clock in the morning in a dark room by yourself. Um, and that is where art is done. It doesn't you know, it, the, there is a couple fun, fun times around, okay, before you start a painting or start some kind of, um, artistic endeavor, and then when it is done and everybody's telling you how wonderful it is. And there are things around gallery openings and other things that are, that are fun. Um, but most of the time is spent at two o'clock in the morning in a dark room by yourself. That is the light. If you, you know, if you kind of add it up, that's 98% of what an artist does. And most people, and the way, the reason there are so many shitty artists is because everybody falls in f- love with the first part because it's the fun part and nobody, you know, really likes painting leaves or, you know, something else that is tedious. Doing the work, uh, in other words. Yeah, doing the actual, the actual work, you know. And there are no barriers to entry. Anybody can do it. And it is all judged on... Merit as well as you know there are some other kinds of things. And I do – I mean we don't really want to – I'd be happy to talk about the
0: artwork because that gets me really <laughs> animated. Um, but, I just have one more but... <laughs> question regarding the art before we move on to the, the more present-day okay. stuff. This is, I'm very curious about this. Now, okay, so obviously you were different a little bit in the sense that you're willing to do the work, which is as a criteria for an entrepreneur, probably the most important criteria as well. So this is a pattern that, you know, is in every industry I believe. But there's got to be more to it in terms of selling your paintings as well, or, or is it a case of? Um-
1: no, there. I mean, there's yes, there's a, a tremendous amount of
0: things that you learn
1: as a successful artist that help you in every other kind of business. Um, I'll, I'll drop a couple of, of kind of cliches about the There's a saying in art, the art world, the big work sells little work. And that means that if I have – and my work is pretty expensive, although I don't have any more to sell. I've sold it all long ago. Um, so my work would range from about – for a gallery painting from about – Twelve thousand dollars up to about sixty thousand dollars, and this is you know nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight, that kind of time. Now, how can you do that? Where do you get that number from? You make it up. It's what the market will bear. <laughs> you know, there are only two things that determine price. And the price is where these two things meet what you're willing to sell something for and what somebody's willing to buy it for. Those are the only two things, you know. And now, you know, so if, you know, all art is in effect sold this way. So I would say, well, I will sell this for $60,000. And I would wait until somebody would come along, and their line would cross mine, and they say, well, "I will buy that for sixty thousand dollars." <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds awfully scary for people who have that confidence that <laughs> so they can sell this for sixty thousand dollars. Well, and you know, <laughs> you know, so so and, and so, so that, you, that is that's you, you know, believe, believe that from day one. Like until you sold a painting at sixty thousand dollars, it, it's pure faith, right? That you well, you don't just
1: it. say that because nobody else's line will cross that until. As an example, big work sells little work. So if I have a gallery show and I have 12 paintings there and they're each $1,200. I might sell six or eight of those. If I have another painting there that's $60,000, I'm going to sell all the little paintings because in the prospect's mind, they're looking and saying, okay, I'm going to spend $1,200 or $12,000, but the artwork that I am buying is from an artist who sells his paintings at $60,000. Is that making sense? So so you will put a big painting – or some expensive things in in order to sell the stuff. Now online you tend to see that a lot with okay here's the you know I have this ultimate package and it's $3000 but you can get in at this low low level of 299 or 2999 whatever it might be and the reason that is done is for exactly that same kind of purpose. It makes the, the, the medium price look more attractive. And, and- it makes them look reasonable, you know, that you're getting the content from somebody who sells his, you know, and everybody, especially if you're looking at like how to make money online, that is kind of rife with the, hey, I spend, you know, my time is worth $12,000 and, but you can, you know, get it for 299 or whatever the kind of medium price is. You tend to move more of those. I mean, there's all sorts of things from the art world that actually kind of translate directly into business because it is, um, you know, not necessarily personality driven, but it is psychologically driven by what you are doing to instill in the buyer's mind that this is a, a good purchase for them. Because, you know, brass tacks, especially if you're dealing with um, things around art, it all has to do with desire and none of it has to do with need. You know, there's nobody's, you know, it's not like medicine in one of the areas that I kind of deal with where, okay, my spleen is, is shutting down. I need to, that's a need. Okay. I've got to get something to get this, this fixed. I want something nice to hang on my wall is definitely a want. And so you have to get really good at, if you're going to be very successful at this, about managing those types of things, because people buy art, um, you know or desi- have by desired things, and they will spend money on those, but you have to hit the right triggers
0: okay so that's anyway a, clearly a uh, a natural Playground for you to learn about business to then begin what you do in medicine. Obviously, <laughs> perhaps not, but there's there is a connection here. So you were studying medicine, and then a business opportunity opened. Yeah, and- so
1: I I basically retired and I moved out to, to Park City, bought a place out here, and I was going to uh, you know go snowboarding uh, during the day, and I have a hot tub, and whoever I met on the board, you know the slopes, who wanted to come back and you know, it was going to be my life of leisure kind of thing. And I'd still be painting was the idea. And, um, I ran across a opportunity, which was that I had a family member who was a physician and he was trying to open up a cosmetic clinic. He was not in cosmetic medicine, uh, really at the time he was just starting this and he was doing terribly at it. And, um, in effect asked for my help in in a couple of ways. I mean, he needed, he thought he needed marketing and some other kinds of things. And I'd always been around working for agencies and have been in advertising and marketing and stuff as well for for a long time. And in looking at what he was doing, I realized that there was much more of an opportunity here that what he really needed was much more business acumen, Um, as well as driving patient flow and operational procedures and a bunch of other things. Now, of course, I didn't have a background that screamed I was the person to do this, but um, I did have a fair amount of capital inside of my extended family, and this is an extended family member, where I would go and say, oh, I'm going to go do this, and then I would actually do it. And so I approached – Uh, this physician in my extended family and I said, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give up my art career and we're going to start this business and I will run it and you know, we'll see where it goes. Now, to be honest, I don't remember exactly how I put it, but it was, it was uh, persuasive enough that he said, Okay. Um, and so I stopped painting. I called up my agents and said, look, I'm going to, you know, not be sending you any more work, stop sending me jobs, and I'm not going to send you any more stuff. And so we started this medical business. And, and in the United States, um, especially this is it gets a little tricky here around medicine because as a, a non-physician, you cannot, for example, employ or partner directly with a physician. And so you have to have corporations set up in order to kind of do this in a manageable way. But we started a cosmetic clinic uh, out of his existing clinic, which at the time was doing pain management. And we grew that well, you know, and in roughly three years, I think we had seven clinics in four states. Uh, his income went from a full time physician who was doing pain management. He was probably taking home about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year. His clinic was probably doing about three hundred and forty thousand or something like that with six employees um, to where he was able to we had another physician working in that clinic, and he was able to call in sick and do some other. Things basically take time off, and his within eighteen months, his income went from thirteen, well, hundred say one hundred thirty thousand dollars to about north of eight hundred thousand dollars. So, everybody's pretty excited about this, and we opened up other clinics um, for in in this state, and then uh, Tennessee, we had one, West Virginia, Florida, and. While I was doing that was just about the time of about 2002, maybe kind of getting in 2003, and I started an online community. I've always kind of been enamored a little bit with uh, technology and stuff as well. And so I started an online medical community for physicians in cosmetic medicine around providing them valuable content in order to have their ear when I needed it. Because as we were opening up these clinics, I wanted to have the ability to go on my own site and say, look, I'm opening up a clinic in this state. Here's the, you know, what we're looking for, and have, you know, fifty or a hundred physicians wanting to come work there, you know, that had been following what we were doing and some other things. And so in order to kind of build this community, I was providing valuable content. I mean, uh, I was telling physicians things that they could not get anywhere else because, and I'm speaking specifically about um, American physicians in this case, but it, it holds true around the world for the most part. In cosmetic medicine, It is unlike traditional medicine. Cosmetic medicine, and what I'll tell physicians is, this is like opening up a women's retail shoe store inside of your medical practice. The clientele is predominantly women. Ninety-three percent of every client, you know, of all of your clients is going to be female. They're going to be. They're going to start at about thirty years of age because that's when the dinner bell rings for cosmetic physicians. You know, (laughs) is that birthdays? You know. and they are expecting out they expect that they're buying outcomes, which is very, very different than traditional medicine, where physicians are selling effort in effect uh, where if you're uh, you know if you've got cancer, you go to the physician and you hope that they're going to help you and you're willing to pay them for their time. If somebody is going in for a facelift that's not what they their expectation is. And so there's a much different dynamic. Now, the plastic surgeons and the dermatologists who have been fighting over this marketplace, cosmetic medicine, um, since the 60s, now had a new competitor. And it was brought about by the advent of technology, which allowed medicine to be delivered through a technology platform that used to be delivered only through a manual skill process. So we're moving right now from... Um, an environment where a physician who is in cosmetic medicine, say a plastic surgeon, very expensive to train, and he is doing invasive surgical procedures and liposuction and facelifts and that kind of stuff. Now there are technologies developed, things around laser hair removal and IPL treatments and I can, you know, get rid of the age spots on the backs of your hands and other things that are not delivered you know, that are delivered through a technology which makes them scalable, replicable, and a lot easier to kind of deliver. And so there's now, instead of just having plastic surgeons and dermatologists, there's now a third leg on this stool, which is these other physicians like we were, um, who now are using technology to address this market that are not. You know trained or board certified in surgery because we 're not doing surgery and are not trained or board certified in dermatology, which is actually the diseases of the skin you know the dermatologists you know treat a lot of different things but dermatology as a as a you know as a medical specialty is really around diseases of the skin, not cosmetic treatments although that 's you know so there 's been a, a the market 's huge so there 's been and now this technology has entered the market and allows Real business practices to take place um, the analogy that i that I often draw is one of the family farm, so in the you know the family farm is kind of going the way of the dodo bird and rightly so now I come from a you know i grew up in effect, my grandparents had a family farm and ended up losing that. And so I'm very familiar with how that works. But if you look at it from the market level, it is inefficient and it is in markets like efficiency. So as technology gets developed, um, medicine is going to be more technology driven. And so I started this blog at the time. It's more of a community now. But, and I would tell physicians, here's, why you don't want to buy this IPL treatment, here's how to negotiate, Uh, here's how to compensate your staff. And it it was information that physicians can't get anywhere else because they're all isolated and all in competition with each other you know um and so we competed as a real business with physicians who were not used to competing at this kind of level uh so we advertised in ways that they didn't advertise we talked to our patients in ways that they did not talk to their patients we offered treatments that you know you couldn't find anywhere else and we um kind of rolled up into the markets where we were and were very very kind of successful
0: All right, i need one thing explained to me here Sure. Um, the The difference you're talking about cosmetic surgery and, and dermatologists. I understand those two. But what is the type of? treatment uh, here with technology, like what is technology? Sure. So
1: it hasn't, it hasn't, sometimes they'll be called aesthetic physicians. Uh, The name of my site is Medical Spa MD. Um, Now we were a, you know, by default a medical spa, but we were 100% medical and offered no basically spa treatment. So you would come into one of our clinics and you could get Botox or Restylane, laser hair removal, photo facials, um, skin tightening treatments, all the kind of technology treatments and nothing like you know, massage or aromatherapy or all that kind of stuff. You know, the the stuff that you go to a day spa. It's it's
0: non-invasive surgical technique. Non-invasive.
1: Yeah. yeah. Non-invasive surgical or not, non-invasive medical technologies was where we, we kind of focused in. And so I ended up with, uh, I ended up exiting that uh, business and in about two thousand and four, but I still had this community of physicians, and I always liked helping this kind of community and so I continued to do so and for a little while, I did kind of consultations did with you physicians who
0: write all the content for that site by the way or at it-
1: the time yeah. yes, I was writing all of the content, and most almost all the content I still write
0: so you 're giving business training to cosmetic surgeons basically
1: well in effect, yes, and and we deal with things that they don 't have access to. In any other form, because there are no communities around this. And the, and the reason is, is that the information that a physician has access to has to do with things like trade shows, with publications, trade publications. And those are all run through an advertising revenue model. And when you run information through advertising, it gets filtered uh, because so, – so if you're going on to a uh, into a trade publication or something for dermatologists, that publication cannot say, you know, this technology sucks and this is obviously a better deal and this is, you know, how you want to do that. Because they have the, – the person who's paying them, the reason they're making revenue is through advertising and they cannot give an unbiased kind of filter. So we became a lot more around like the uh, consumer reports of – uh, medical technologies. Now I have to say that we were quite successful with this and it also irked some people. In fact, I think I've, I think I'm going through my fourth, um, actual lawsuit right now. Um, uh, now some of them did not end up in, in lawsuits, but, um, you know, I am being sued right now. And basically because somebody, uh, what, what happened was, this is a little bit interesting and, and my, Raises the hair on the back of my neck. I must say, <laughs> um, what, what know, happened was public. Remember, <laughs> yeah. So what what happened was there were some medical. There was a medical spa franchise. I won't name it. Just it was probably on my blog by now already. But there's a medical spa franchise that went out of business, and the reason they went out of business was that their franchisees organized, in effect, on my site. They would leave comments, and through the you know the information that they had left on the comment, other people would recognize, oh, this person owns a franchise. And they were trying to – the franchisor was attempting to kind of keep them all separate and siloed. And so they connected to each other. And they started talking about, you know, now through email, they found themselves on my site, and then and then would, you know, post um, post comments and connected to each other through email, and then they basically organized and stopped paying their franchise fee and drove the franchisor into bankruptcy. Now businesses don't like that. And so they tend to try and sue everybody. And so they there's this time they're suing all of the franchisees, and they kind of named me. Now they don't make any claims against me other than I'm just a bad, terrible blog. I think they call me something like that. You know, a nasty, <laughs> bad, terrible blog or something. But as a harassment, they in effect named me to the suit. Uh, even though we've not, you know, and and. and it's without merit and some other kinds of things, but it is possible to kind of, especially in the United States, end up in litigation that is less than than uh, desirable. Especially in medicine, I mean, the U.S. is a very litigious society to start.
0: Mm. It's interesting though that you it's, its a legal matter almost more because of the franchising, the business side, not necessarily. Well, yeah, I mean. The- I have gotten nasty letters,
1: nasty grams from other lawyers because somebody will leave a comment and say, you know, these this training program, you know, sucks or I mean they sometimes will get very kind of vocal in their outrage. And the truth of the matter is that if we didn't have the clout that we had inside of the the community where the VP of sales knows that we're either moving product for them because they've gotten a positive reviews on the site or we're costing them because people are posting negative comments about them. It wouldn't be, you know, if it was just my personal blog and nobody read it, nobody would care. Um, but the fact that we're actually kind of moving the needle for companies one way or another makes them care a great deal. So Anyway, so that was that was why I started the site. Now, at about the same time, I you know was looking to do some other kinds of things and and uh, invested in some technology startups. And I now work with technology startups, and you know, so I in effect have a day job. But the kind of micropreneur or solopreneur part of what I do has expanded a great deal since uh, those days. Um, in that we do have products that we now sell. Uh, we have select partners that we now, uh, allow to appear on the, the site. Um, you're saying we Jeff, who's we, well, I have a, I, I say we just because we, I have a staff. Um, and so the, the, the business actually started making money. I mean, first of all, I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, fortunately Yarrow, as I mentioned uh, just before we kind of started talking, I have purchased a number of your products, so uh, you know um, that taught me a fair amount, and I learned a fair amount uh, in in other ways and on my own. So I kind of had a a feeling. Look, you know, I have this community. I'm getting you know fifty thousand page views a month, and it's not it's not massively huge, but. I'm in a very, very kind of desirable niche. When most people approach medicine, what they will try and do is approach it from the um, patient side to try and aggregate patients, and then they want to sell those patients, in effect, to physicians, you know, or dentists or whatever. So they will build a site about diabetes. They will try and get a lot of people on their list, and then they will try and make revenue by either selling the patients' information or selling the patients information to physicians as leads or some other kind of a thing. Now, there's no barrier to entry to that way and it's very, you know, there's it's it's a tougher it's it's an easier thing to do because there's a lot of content out there that I can just kind of go and find and build, but it's not a real business. Meaning from my point of view, I want to have something that's an asset that could be protected and that you know, can't be duplicated and some other things. And so, I approached it from exactly the opposite End of the spectrum, which is said, I'm going to, uh, you know, the place that I want to attack is I want to own the value, which is the physician's thoughts, meaning, you know, their top of mind awareness where they are, because that's where, that's who is going to be spending the money in kind of this vertical niche. You know, now I wasn't making any. I, you know, the the blog doesn't charge. It's not a traditional membership site, and the membership is free. Um, what we, in effect, do in order to drive revenue is we provide a tremendous amount of value, and then we take on partners that have even more value, and they charge, um, you know, for their products and services. And for some of those, we're really, you know, kind of a perfect niche. Other things that we thought were going to work um, have not. Yeah, and once the once the site started making money, um, you know, I know a fair amount now about outsourcing and about other kinds of things. So, uh, I have uh, I'll
0: stop you, Jeff, before you keep okay. building this story. the The website is called uh, What's the address? Medical Spy MD. Yeah, MD. dot com dot com. Okay. Now it started as a blog. It grew into a community site, which I presume. But when you say that, you did you add a forum to it? What's the community aspect. Yes,
1: there were a couple things that that happened. First of all, um, I made some, you know, over the years in effect, I started and I thought, oh, I'll put some advertising on there. So I had uh, a Yahoo AdWords thing running. And I would make maybe two or $300 a month with that. Um, and then I we were getting a fair amount of traction, and so I added forums and kind of broke those apart and you know things kind of started adding up uh, just a little bit and Then I switched to Google AdWords and immediately I went from about two or three hundred dollars a month to making north of just you know around a thousand dollars a month and The only thing that I had changed was that I had switched from Yahoo to google now i I was with Yahoo initially just to irritate my brother in law who works for Google to be honest. <laughs> Um, But then I realized, okay, look, you know, this is now, it's kind of paying for itself. There's other opportunities here. And I was getting a tremendous number of incoming requests that I couldn't respond to, meaning that, you know, partner solicitations. Uh, We have a product. We'd like to get on your site. And, you know, I was working with a day job. So I, I work in you know, I don't know, not offline businesses, but technology businesses. So these are uh, businesses that are Silicon Valley startups. You can kind of think of them that way. Um, you know, so, Wait, so I didn't so have a so your nine to five job is yeah, and it's more like a, you know it's it's a, yeah. So I do kind of technology startups. Yeah, okay, like but this and so I was getting this. Uh, I was getting this. Um, You know, incoming deal flow, in effect, by partners that are approaching me and saying, we want to advertise on your site or we'd like to do a, you know, will you post about us or, you know, and I just didn't have time to do that. And so I said, okay, look, I'm going to bite the bullet. And so I hired my first staff member. Uh, who is still with me you've, you've talked to Lori And so Lori's in California and I, and I kind of brought her on board And since that time We've kind of grown To where I now have uh, it, Because we've expanded past This one site Because to be honest the content that we put on this site is so niche and narrowly focused that in effect i have to basically write it i can't you know outsource it i can't but but the the community you know we now have about 20,000 comments on the site the community provides a huge amount of value that was something that you know i learned was, was a huge benefit is if you could engage the community where they were actually not only, um, receiving a tremendous amount of value, but they would actually provide the value as well. So we have very, very kind of, if you go on the the site and do searches and find comments, um, I have one post that I did. It has more than a, I think it's got more than a thousand comments and, you know, that kind of, and these are not comments like, hey, great post. Okay, we're all familiar with that. These are missives. I mean, there's comments on there that are, you know, a thousand, two thousand words of detail. Here's how to do this procedure. Uh, here's my experience with this uh, head from this one certain IPL. Here's how to rebuild this part. Here's where to buy this kind of, you know, th- these are not things that you can necessarily find. Very kind of niche. And if you're looking for information about cosmetic medicine and around technology, we, in effect, became the default single source where you could go online and kind of have some sense of trust that you're not just being pitched to by one of the manufacturers, right? Um, And so these incoming deals that I was kind of getting, I didn't really have time to you know, respond to them or anything. And I knew that I was losing revenue and I knew I was going to have to bite the bullet. So I basically, you know, hired one full-time employee and um, that was a big inflection point for this business Uh, because now I had somebody that I trusted and we, you know, there's a fair amount of kind of, you know, I didn't go completely outsource. Although I have employees now in India and uh, the Philippines, um, my first You know, forays were in effect kind of local, so that I knew I had some kind of confidence um, in, you know, the the English ability and the kind of personnel, uh, you know, personnel or those types of things that I knew that real business could kind of get done because most of these businesses that were approaching us were US based. Businesses, Right. And this was not going to be conversations that were taking place via, via email and some other things. And that was a big inflection point because we immediately started getting uh, traction and I didn't have to field every phone call and some other things. And, and, um, we could have a conversation every day at the end of the day and say, here's the stuff that I've learned, here's the stuff that I want you to do, and here's the, where, this, where this deal is right now, and here is how I want you to position this deal, and what I want you to say, and this is what – and most importantly, when you're dealing in this kind of an environment where you're kind of negotiating through somebody, which is, in effect what I was doing, what I want the recipient to understand – this is this is the, our position, but uh, the way that I want you to talk about this is this is what this other partner should understand about what it is that we're doing. And we said no. To be honest, we still say no, probably ninety-eight percent of the time. I get um, we have a selection where you can kind of go in and contact us and apply to become a select partner and stuff, and we get two or three week. Um, and I think we have maybe eight partners total or something like that
0: now. And what do the partners receive?
1: Well, the partners receive they receive a couple of things. So we built this as a kind it's a, it's a little bit of novel in that all of our partners are in effect kind of brick and mortar businesses. They're not just selling information products or other things. Um, some of our partners do really pretty well, uh, you know, the, in the millions of dollars in retail uh, sales over the course of a year. And they receive space on our site. Uh, you know, we in effect vouch for them. I mean, because the way that this typically works is if i 'm a physician and uh, you know I am buying a product i 'm just a lonely physician and i 'm only buying five or ten thousand dollars a product a year I, the, I, the rep that i 'm dealing with he 's got another two hundred physicians he 's talking to i don 't have any real recourse if something goes bad i don 't have any buying power. And so what we do is we take our entire community and we aggregate the buying power. So you, it, it's free to join. So as, as you join that, we demand from our select partners pricing um, so their pricing is lower than you can buy by yourself. And... Exemplary customer service, because For medical equipment. I, uh, yeah, so medical equipment. We, you know, we have partners that sell things like uh, injectables, so in pharmacies, um, or they sell training, uh, you know, or they run conferences, or they have like some like subscription a club almost. It's a little bit like a discount club, but it's 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 much more than that. In that everybody has recourse. So so. As a physician, now I've joined Medical Spa MD. Now I have – not only do I have pricing power, okay, but I also have a venue that I have the microphone, right? Because if we – if you are a physician and you buy something from Medical Spa MD, a select partner, and you don't like it or they you know, don't carry their end of the bargain, not only can you go and post that on the site – which I don't like, but you can send me an email because I've said, these are the guys that you should be buying from. And I don't like that. And so over the course of, you know, we've been probably doing this for two more than two years now, we've probably kicked four or five select partners off of the site because they weren't kind of upholding their end of the bargain. does that that make sense? So, so as a physician, it's just like a no lose scenario that way, you know, not only am I getting this um, discount on the, services but instead of going from a you know a, a peon discount guy now i'm right at the top of where they want their customer service to be because i'm aware because we talk to our partners you know uh, we talk to our partners probably pretty often once every other week at least And they're all aware that if this is a medical spy MD member, this came in through that phone number or whatever, that these guys get the, you know, kind of white glove treatments, which is pretty nice for a physician. And so, um, you know, we end up
0: with something that's uh, a pretty, you know, a workable model in that way. It's a nice sort of transparent credibility mechanism that the crowd determines what to trust. And and you can get out. Well, yeah, because because they
1: will then go and post, and they will say either I had a very good experience or I didn't have a good experience, and you know then we will not only can they go to the company, but they can go in effect to us as well as the community. Um, And the companies are very very aware of this. Now, like I said, I've been sued a couple times. They're very aware that having negative press on the site, and this is not something you can just. You know, if nobody's going to your site, nobody cares, to be honest. So you have to have – before you can put something into operation on this kind of a level, you have to have a certain kind of traction uh, inside the community. You have to be driving the right kind of traffic, and and people have to be hearing about you a fair amount in order to kind of do that. But that has also kind of led to a number of other um, businesses, in effect. And so the, the most recent one is that we're breaking out of just the kind of cosmetic um, – Area. And we've uh, launched a site. We launched it in August, or no, let's see, November 17th of last year, uh, 2010, called freelancemd.com. And this site is for all physicians and deals with lifestyle issues. Uh, so everything other than the clinical practice of medicine. So, um, things around, okay, how you're going to negotiate, how you're going to invest your money, how you're going to, um, manage your assets, how you're going to build additional revenue streams outside of your clinical practice, whether you want to leave clinical practice, um, you know, what kind of jobs are available to a physician that, that wants to leave medicine, which there are a growing number of. And I have a partner in in that business, a physician uh, who's an emergency med physician who's, who was running uh, uh, conferences for exactly this kind of stuff. He does wilderness medicine and what is called adventure medicine. So if you're, you know, you're, going, to, if you're going to the you know, jungles of Borneo and you're going to be gone for three months and you're taking a physician along, he's one of these guys that you want to take along kind of a thing. Uh, so it's, it's kind of this kind of a little bit more fun. And so the appeal to physicians now is, I said, look, you know, We've had success here, but this success is entirely replicable um, to a broader field. So we've assembled uh, on Freelance MD, we have about 20 physician authors right now. And these include, you know, uh, Harvard University professors, um, authors, uh, filmmakers, um, you know, people that are using or are experts in medicine lifestyles. Um, meaning not the day-to-day grind of digging ditches, the digging ditches of medicine, but things around, okay, how am I going to build wealth or how am I going to scale myself or what kinds of things, opportunities are available to me. And to be honest, that site is doing much better than I ever even hoped. You know, um, So we'll see where that kind of goes.
0: All right. Now, we're getting towards the end of the interview here, Jeff. There's a few things I'd just like you to share with us before we do wrap up. Uh, in terms of revenue streams it's I, I i kind of understand what you're doing, but maybe you could break down a little bit more about uh you know how how your whole online platform derives revenue and, and what do all your staff do because it sounds like you've got more now than just one full time employee as well
1: yeah, so I have uh one full time u s employee uh, I have had others but uh I have n- n- ended our relationship with, with the others. Uh, then I have a staff of five in the Philippines and then I have one full time, uh, developer in, uh, India and they kind of range They They are kind of segmented. But, um, I have a system in which, uh, I use a, well, if you're familiar with, um, product kind of management systems, you know, or, or project management software. Um, like basic- once I, yeah, like a base camp. I'm using um, Active Collab is what I'm using, but uh, like a base camp. Um, so what I did was I was triggered on actually through one of your blog posts onto the uh, to some other kind of outsourcing things. And while I understood exactly what they're doing, and that's I- I- incredibly beneficial probably to a number of people, I knew that I was going to have to actually build my own um, because what we're doing is things that are. N- in some ways, typical. So we're writing articles in some things or formatting or reaching out to people. Um, And in other ways, we're kind of, you know, doing complex negotiations that I, in effect, don't have time to do. Um, And so we have, I built basically modules about, okay, here's how we're going to do this. And, and so for my outsourcers, not my domestic, but my international outsourcing team. They basically go through an entire training module that says, here's how our businesses work. This is the the range of businesses. Here's the number of sites that we have. Here's the logins and passwords. And so they are then assigned to a module that I've kind of created. And this is typically through screencasts as well as kind of written um, and has a task list. And it might be, okay, we're going, you know, Facebook marketing. We do. We do. You know, kind of Twitter marketing. Although I, I'm less of a fan of of Twitter than I am of some of the other social networks, LinkedIn, uh, you know, groups, and how we're going to approach individual uh, physicians to alert them around, about our products, and then how that's gonna that's gonna. Happen once we have an incoming lead of some sort, because the way that we I manage these businesses, these online businesses, is we just provide a, a huge amount of value that's readily apparent. Once you're inside the space, you, you can understand where the value is. Because there's you know whether you're making a decision or you're we're helping you to not make a decision. These are expensive. Things. If I'm saving you hundred thousand dollars because you're not buying a certain IPL or cosmetic laser, that has a, a super amount of value because there's only three things that physicians in this space kind of want to know: what to buy, how to you know how to learn how to do something, and how to kind of get more patients. Those are the kinds of three things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we derive revenue basically through partner agreements. Uh, some of the products we build ourselves. Um, And so I have some other ancillary businesses that are not necessarily specific uh, but are technology platforms or or such. For example, I have a business called Front Desk SEO, and you can see that at frontdeskseo.com. And that is a technology play um, that provides a front and kind of a back end for people who are doing SEO for their own site, Mm -hmm. especially for things that you're outsourcing. Um, specifically and for doctors, though? it's not specifically for physicians, although we do, you know, I'd say probably 50% of our clients with that business are physicians. And it really is just because, okay, I already have this kind of target market that we will talk about um, to two physicians in that space, but it's all kind of a tech, it's, you know, it's a, it's a universal thing, but because we have physicians, we do kind of market it to them too. Uh, but anybody in effect can use it. And what happens is you go online and we have a, it's a pretty sophisticated back end where we go out and we will find based on what your keywords are, um, you know, backlinks so that you're doing, directory listings and blog commenting and, you know, find forums for you, um, in order to raise your search rankings over a period of time. And it's a subscription model. Um, you know, so that is just one kind of example of the businesses that we build that might kind of tie in, but they're also open. ended. it doesn't matter if you're a restaurant or if you're a oil change is if you're a small business, this has applicability to you. And of course, then we provide the outsource, Um, services for that too. So we do have additional outsource um, employees so that when somebody comes and says, okay, this is what I want to have happen, but I don't want to do it ourselves. Front desk SEO, it originally was initiated so that you are front desk staff, meaning you are a receptionist and stuff. If she is just, a she or he is sitting there with nothing to do. They can do your internet marketing for them, for you. They log in and they're provided a, a, a set of tasks. These are not by rote. These are based upon, you know, the keywords that you're targeting in the local area that you're targeting. These are for small brick and mortar businesses and they can actually be doing, your online marketing in their kind of downtime. Now, not everybody wants to necessarily do that. And so we do get a fair number of clients that say, okay, um, you know, we want you to do all of that and we charge them more. And then we have actually people that kind of go online and do that. But one of the things that I have found, and you know, there's a saying in, in how to make money online, which is the money is in the list is that the community, you know the, the the relationship that you have with the community is really where the the value is. If you can make the me, needle move by making a recommendation, and that's you know why you ha- have lists and things in the first place, then you've got an asset that can kind of um, you know be leveraged into to a reasonable amount of income. And,
0: and in in, what, and, in your case, what's what's the total value of the business? Like, what's your turnover? If, if obviously, if you're comfortable um, stating. Well, um, one
1: of our—you uh, know—I I probably won't go through the the
0: entire rigmarole,
1: but one of our I just want one big ballpark the, figure, so I can see one of our businesses last year did one point eight million. Okay, uh, is that the online one, or yeah? So these are online businesses. Okay. So these are these, are, and and fortunately, that provides a, a system that allows you to once you're making money, you can then scale and actually. Spend money, so you're not worried necessarily about, um, you know, taking on the additional risks of of outsourced employees and stuff, and it allows you to spend your time on working on the business once you kind of get your head above the clouds. Now, I had, you know, you're, you're aware that is not uh, normal income, and one of the re- meaning that even if you're doing online, that's pretty decent, um, and especially if you're doing a part time. Uh, online and and you have basically employees that are doing almost all of the work, uh, that's pretty good. And the reason that I think that that is achievable is the way that I approach online businesses is as a real business where, um, you know, we're actually dealing much more with taking brick and mortar businesses um, and driving revenue to brick and mortar businesses that are actually dependent upon revenue. So, as an example, front desk SEO is an online business. Everything takes place online, but the benefit to the business is somebody is actually doing a search or something else, and they are walking through the door in order to buy something. And I have found that that is as a as a you know a, a brick and mortar business for a client has a a client for a brick and mortar business has more value than a client for an online business. Uh, typically because they kind of capture those people and they're selling them stuff that is, you know, delivered in, in some kind of a way. And they're willing not only to pay, pay more, but they are driving more revenue than it's possible to really do online, except if you're doing some kind of expensive membership site or something per person.
0: Okay. So, Jeff, I, I think I'd like to wrap it up. We're almost getting to an hour for this interview uh, with, with one question, really, the, the, probably the most important one for everyone listening to this. Uh, for a lot of people, they're brand new at this. You sound like you've got lots of different sort of businesses running, all derived, perhaps you could correct me if I'm wrong, but initially from this community that you've built, like you've sort of extended and added new components to it, but always making sure the community is, is uh, the, the driver and, and being fed lots of value. But going back to when you first started this, when you were the only writer and you know not so many people were using the site, uh, what was it that allowed you to build this community? Like, how did you get the traffic, and when, what was the key to the success right back at the start? Then, well, there's
1: there's two things. One was that I was not building the community in order to try and drive revenue from it, and so I was able to operate outside of the kind of normal strictures that are that happen if this is you're trying to kind of uh, replace your income immediately. So there's a couple of things. One is that the market that I was addressing was very, very large, not as a number of people, but as a, as a dollar amount, the the market cap inside of the market that I wanted to address was a big market, meaning cosmetic medicine or medicine in general. The other thing was that I was saying things that because I had a lot of domain experience, because I have, you know, open seven clinics and I have talked to hundreds of physicians and I've talked at conferences. I had a huge amount of domain experience. And because I was not deriving revenue in the traditional manner, which was advertising and that kind of thing, I could say things that other people weren't saying. And so it didn't matter to me because I wasn't driving revenue from them anyway. I just wanted to have a good reputation and really kind of, you know, uh, you say it the way that it was that's led to other problems but those have been overshadowed by the successes i would say and and the third thing was i just kind of kept at it over a period of time i think that that you know this is a little bit like compounding interest that it is very very this is this is like farming and not hunting this is not something meaning Building a reputation, driving a lot of traffic. This is not something where you can kind of go and uh, without a, a huge input in, uh, you know, s- uh, spend to to drive a lot of traffic. Um, you know, I, I have listened to the to you know all of your stuff and took a, a tremendous amount of value around that. So you know, pillar content and in membership sites and some other kinds of things, and I'm still kind of. Debating whether to kind of start some tr- more traditional membership sites, maybe. But I think those kind of those kinds of three things was that you know pressure over time um, allowed us to kind of incrementally achieve a certain level. Now there is kind of a tipping point that you reach, um, and maybe it's your first lawsuit. I don't know exactly what it what it is. Where
0: let's hope that's you funny.
1: know <laughs> where, well you, you'll kind of find out, especially if you're in a, a larger market where. People have heard about you a number of times, and now the solicitations for partnerships or um, agreements, or you know, we'd like to be included in your um, outgoing membership list because we think that this is going to be good for us. Those kinds of things kind of you'll you'll they'll start to trickle in, and then they'll then they will become significant. Um, and it 's probably at that point that you have the potential if you do things right in order to kind of turn turn it on into a real business in in some ways I mean um, you know I was always fortunate in the fact that i didn 't need the the revenue, and so it didn 't matter to me. Um, that much when, you know, if I was making an extra $200 and I did that for, you know, like six years of this, this, um, because I didn't know quite enough about how I was going to really monetize this and, and keep the community kind of intact and not become just another kind of me too, uh, product. So I don't know if that answers, uh, exactly what you were hoping for, Yaro, but that's kind of my best shot at Fundamentally, uh, yeah. I
0: think it does. Uh, practically, I'm sure there's so many little, little things you did along the way that we could spend another two hours looking at just the the online marketing techniques you use. But haven't got time for that. <laughs> Jeff um, well, and let me just add one other thing, which is the outsource component
1: of what it is that you 're doing almost anything that you 're doing if you 're going to do it at scale is going to involve multiple people um, in technology startups if you 're looking at a real kind of company, one of the first things that you look at if you 're looking um, is wh- who 's the team that is kind of surrounded surrounded this and I kind of occasionally bump into people that are you know doing online money-making businesses of some sort, and typically they have a very kind of unfocused relationship with their outsourced team. They might have one person or two people, or they might be exclusively using Elance or Odesk or or something else as a kind of a term thing. If you're going to run a business, you're actually going to kind of have to run a real business, and that involves some of the headaches of actually kind of managing people kind of day-to-day and stuff. And that's one of the things that I ran into. And so I built an entire kind of system so that I did not have to train people one after the other kind of a thing.
0: Awesome. So, Okay, Jeff, thank you so much for that. Um, One more time, websites to check out your work and see this uh, empire you've built? Well, there's there's
1: probably a couple. Uh, If you're a physician, I'd invite you over to Medical Spa MD uh, or – Uh, FreelanceMD.com. these are both uh, sites for physicians anywhere in the world we have uh, physicians all around the world Um, if you're looking for some other sites that we derive revenue from as an example uh, i would point you to frontdeskseo.com we now have a print on demand site called uh, printmd.net and that's probably that's probably a good amount for this (laughs) okay
0: awesome thank you very much for uh, taking the time well thank you yarrow I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff Barson. If you're looking to listen to some more fantastic interviews with experts on internet marketing, business, personal development, and blogging, please visit my blog. It's at entrepreneurs-journey.com, or you can just Google my name, which is Yarrow, Y-A-R-O, and you'll find the blog that way. And you can find more podcasts in the uh, audio tab at the site or the podcast tab. And there's a huge collection there of over 60 interviews with experts that you can uh, download 100% for free. Once again, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I look forward to talking to you again on a future call. This is Yara Stark. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.